Well, it's Palm Sunday. It's the day that we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, the long-awaited and triumphal King and Messiah. And typically on Palm Sunday, we would be looking at the account of the triumphal entry, but we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be looking at the events that follow immediately after his triumphal entry, taking us through Sunday night and Monday and into Tuesday. So that's kind of what we're going to be looking at as we anticipate Good Friday to come and the resurrection as well. With that in mind, I invite you to stand now for the reading of God's word that comes from Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. So following the triumphal entry, verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, and he's saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Father, Lord, we come to you now anticipating you to speak to us. Would you speak to our hearts this, this, this morning and transform us by your Holy Spirit? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I was recently reading a story of uh, a man who over the years had developed quite a collection of ancient antiquities, like of, uh, of these different potteries and things like that. And uh, one evening he was out to dinner and he was at a party and he was talking to a, a guy who just so happened to be one of the, the most well-known ancient inscription experts. Like he studied ancient inscriptions for a living. And so this is what he did. And so they started talking about their comp his collection and one thing led to another and he invited them to his apartment to see this private collection for himself. And as they're walking through the apartment looking at the different things, he noticed over on the balcony a limestone pot. And inside the pot, casually, were some plants, some household plants that were in there. But written on the side of the box was an ancient inscription written in Arabic. Okay? Now, this box wasn't originally intended to be a planner. It was actually intended to be an ossuary. Okay? An ossuary was... Um, 
was this bone box that was used in the first and second century for about a hundred years and it was used as a way to for the for the dead and so what would happen is that uh, people when people deceased they would put them put them in the tomb and bury them there and after a year would would pass the the flesh would decay and someone would go in and collect the bones and put them in these ossuaries right and these ossuaries were a way to kind of honor the dead well, on this balcony with plants in it was this ancient ossuary just sitting in plain sight. And when the expert read the words, I can only imagine what he thought in his reaction. He read these words, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. What the collector had been using as a flower pot on his balcony was an ancient um, ossuary that at one point contained the bones of the apostle James and brother of Jesus. This is remarkable. It's remarkable. Well, over the years, this has become one of the most scrutinized and examined artifacts in history. And of course, it's debated, but many top-notch scholars, first-rate scholars, believe that this, in fact, the inscription on it is authentic, and that this is, in fact, the earliest direct archaeological link to Jesus and his family. It's amazing, isn't it? It's truly amazing what can be hidden in plain sight. Well, in our passage this morning, there is something, I think, hidden in plain sight. There are a number of curious and perplexing things about our passage as we study it and read it. I'm sure as we were reading it earlier, there are a number of questions that maybe popped into your mind, things that you were thinking about and wondering about. Well, I think inside our passage is an interpretive key that is hidden in plain sight. Before we get there, let's look at some of these, these things that jump out. First, beginning in verse 11, just to remind you the context. So Jesus had just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey as the long-awaited king and messiah and the crowds were cheering and shouting hosanna in the highest and mark records these details he says in verse 11 and he entered jerusalem and he went into the temple okay at this point nothing curious like we would actually probably expect Jesus to do this at point like to go to the temple uh, and and perhaps maybe he would give a sermon at this point maybe some sort of hurrah speech or maybe perform some miracle at this point but listen to what happens next okay so he enters Jerusalem he enters the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late he went to Bethany with the twelve he looked around at everything Okay, if you know anything about Mark, he is one of the most succinct, brief writers. Like he, everything he writes is quick, fast, immediate, and it has a purpose. Why include this seemingly insignificant detail about looking around the temple in this passage, right? He could have just excluded it, right? He could have just said, Jesus went to the temple and it was late and he went to Bethany, right? He could have just ended it there, but he doesn't. He includes that detail. Why? That's the first curious thing. This is probably the least of the curious things on here, right? It only gets more curious after this. Well, Mark, as he moves on in the text, seems to be a little scattered brain. okay? So look at him. He says, he goes on, and next thing we know, he says this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. 
for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. All of a sudden, Mark goes from talking about the triumphal entry to talking about fig trees. Fig trees of all, right? This is curious, right? This is, doesn't seem, this seems a little off, right? Well, we're told on the next day, Jesus, when he's coming from Bethany where he spent the night, he's heading back into Jerusalem. And we're told as he's walking and heading that way, he's hungry. Okay, he's hungry. And so he sees this leafy green tree off in the distance and expecting that it's leaf, because it's leafy and green, it's going to have fruit. He expected to find fruit on it. He gets there, no fruit. What does Jesus do? He curses it. He says, may no fruit ever come from you again. Right? That's his response. Uh, it's a little curious. Seems like a strong response, right, from Jesus. Maybe he got off on the wrong foot. We don't know, right? Uh, so, but we've all been there. To some extent, we can understand this, right? In the Bennett household, we um, love desserts, okay? We love to enjoy good desserts, some ice cream in particular. Um, and we have been known from time to time to go out on emergency run and buy some ice cream from the local CVS or Central Market and put it in the freezer to stock it away for later, you know, anticipating it, excited about it uh, in the future, thinking that, okay, once we hang out with the kids, once we, once we get, go through bath time and put them to bed and we straighten up the house, that we're going to be able to enjoy a nice, delicious bowl of ice cream, right? And so you go through all the routine, you put everyone to bed, you straighten up the house, you make your way to the, the freezer, you open the freezer, lo and behold, it's gone. It's not there. Or you open it and it's three-fourths of the way gone, right? And you like, in that moment, it is a unholy moment, isn't it? <laughs> right? When, when it is not there. It's not, well, that seems to be something that's happening to Jesus here, okay? He's upset, he expected to find food, it's not, doesn't have it. Well, the scene becomes even more curious when we recognize that we're told that this wasn't even the season four figs. It wasn't even the season four figs in verse 13. This has led some commentators to kind of be kind of harsh on Jesus' response and saying that Jesus kind of succumbed to some sort of fit of irrational temper. Uh, Klausner calls it a, listen to this, a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong and had but performed its natural function. And Manson writes, it is a tale of miraculous power, wasted in the service of ill temper, right? So there's this, this kind of uh, thought about it. Well, obviously, this goes against the grain of what we know about Jesus in the New Testament. And so the burden on us as translators is trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? Something else must be happening here to make sense of this. Well, it gets even more curious, right? It doesn't stop from there. Now, all of a sudden, in verse 15 and 16, he starts talking about the temple. So we go from the triumphal entry to fig trees and then to the temple. And this is what he says. And so they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to, to carry anything through the temple. Okay. Um, this is curious, right? He goes from fig trees to now tossing tables and driving out people of the temple, right? People are just having a good time. They're celebrating. They're buying sacrifices. They're exchanging money. And then Jesus just starts throwing down the gauntlet. Can we just admit it's bizarre? It's a little bizarre, right? Doesn't seem to line up. 
Well, what's going on here? Why this demonstration of outrage in the temple, this demonstration of outrage on the fig tree uh, in this picture? As I suggested earlier, I think that the answer is hidden in plain sight. One crucial detail unlocks the whole chain of events. The answer becomes abundantly clear when we realize that what we have in front of us is none other than what scholars call a Markin sandwich, okay? If you've uh, listened to David preach, which you have, right, you know that we've talked about this before, a Markin sandwich. Um, you have bread, you have the meat, and you have more bread, right? If you look at the text, it's fig tree, temple, more fig tree, right? Bread, meat, bread. That's what we have here. And the whole point is that this is a literary technique that Mark uses from time to time in which he t intends two events to be interpreted in light of the other. The bread helps us to interpret the meat, the temple, okay? The fig helps us to interpret the So with all of that, what we see is that the temple relates to the fig tree and the fig tree relates to the temple. And so what Jesus is doing with the fig tree is chock full of meaning, Look at the fig tree again. If you look back at the story, remember Jesus was hungry? He sees a leafy fig tree off in the distance. He assumes because it has all of this foliage that it's full of fruit. When he gets there, he realizes that appearances can be deceiving. Seeing that there is no fruit, he curses it. We're told later on it withers and it dies. It's not that Jesus is hangry and he's using his divine powers to destroy a perfectly good plant, Jesus, like the prophets before him, is actually teaching by means of a word picture. Okay? Instead of telling the people the facts, he's showing the people the facts. Okay? And he's doing so by means of the fig tree. So here's the connection between the tree and the temple. Just as the tree, the fig tree, was all foliage and no fruit, so is the temple. Put differently, just as the fig tree appeared to be full of life, to be full of fruitfulness, and in reality is fruitless, and for all intents and purposes is dead, so is the temple. Just as Jesus brought his judgment down on the fig tree by cursing it, so will he bring down his judgment on the temple. So let's look now at the temple. Look with me back at verse 11. Remember I made a big deal about him looking around at everything and how that was peculiar? Why, peculiar. Why was he looking around, right? Why was he doing that? Well, um, uh, I think this is recorded following the triumphal entry because Mark is preparing us for what Jesus is about to do. It's like a, a coach going and scouting out the competition and watching them play prior to the game, the game before. It's like the, the team watching the footage, the, the old footage to kind of examine the ins and outs of the opposing team to prepare to come in. What Jesus is doing is very methodical, intentional, and purposeful, okay? Well, what did he see? What the, how did things appear when he went and saw the temple? Well, what did he see? Well, first off, remember, it's Passover week, okay? And so this would have been a, an exciting time to be in Jerusalem, okay? It would have been like being in New Orleans for Mardi Gras or in New York Times Square for New Year's Eve, okay? This was a happening time, lots of hustle and bustle, lots of people. Scholars think that and estimate that over 200,000 people at least 
descended upon Jerusalem at the time of Passover. People coming from all over. And when they came, they brought excitement and they brought money. Okay? And the money was being used for two things. One, it was used to pay the annual temple tax that was required by the Old Testament law. Okay? So God required that. Secondly, it was being, and probably more importantly, it was being used to buy and pay for the sacrificial Passover lambs, or in the case of the poor, pigeons, okay, so that they can perform their duties. And so, as a convenience, these booths or tables would be set up, and money exchangers would be present so that when people brought their foreign money, it could be exchanged so that they could turn their foreign money into whatever the, the closest equivalent is to the Old Testament shekel so that they could pay their, their temple tax that was required of them. And then, also, as a convenience, they would provide animals for sacrifice. The lambs and the pigeons would be provided there, right? They would be coming from these long distance Imagine, and there's a lot of risk in bringing your sacrifices alive from a long distance, right? They could, they could die, they could get injured, they could get stolen. There's lots of things that could happen. So as a convenience, these things were provided for them. So there's tons of money, there's tons of people, and there's tons of excitement. And it was all centered around the temple and the temple grounds, okay? You have to imagine, this is, again, not the temple of Solomon. That's, that was destroyed by the Babylonians. This is the second temple. This is the temple that was greatly expanded by King Herod, okay? Uh, and the temple grounds, you have to know, they're massive, okay? I want you to imagine this concrete platform, rectangular platform, that was raised, and with these towering concrete walls built surrounding the whole perimeter, and it took up about 35 acres, about one-fourth the square area of all of Jerusalem. Huge, okay? So this is the focal point of all of these things. And obviously we don't have any photos and we don't have any video footage, but what we can gather from ancient descriptions and archaeological uh, evidences is that when the pilgrims ascended these massive stairs to come up to the top of this temple, on Mount Moriah, they found themselves looking at these magnificent arches and colonnades and porches and ornate uh, doors and everything as they came and looked. It was a spectacle to behold. And then at the very top of the hill, as you ascended even more stairs, was the temple itself covered in gold, sparkling and shining, right? A splendor in its own right. I remember the first time I attended like a Christian conference as a young Christian in college. And I remember going there and being overwhelmed by the amount of people that were there, right? Overwhelmed. I was like, wow, I didn't realize there were this many God, of God's people. I didn't really realize that there's this many Christians, right? And you're here listening to some of the top-notch Christian speakers and you're, you're all worshiping and you're singing and praising God for the same things. And it ended up being this great experience, right? Like we're familiar with this if you've ever been to our UF summer conference or youth, if you've been to a camp of some sort and you realize, oh wow, Providence isn't the only church in America, right? You realize that. Well, I would imagine something like that's going on here for these Israelites as they're all gathering and they, they're sensing the excitement. And this excitement would have been amplified by the fact that they haven't always been able to celebrate the Passover. In fact, there were times when the temple wasn't even around. There was times when they were actually in exile for decades. Okay? And this would have amplified the fact that here they are able to, to worship. 
Yes, they were, they were under the thumb of Rome, but at least they had the temple. At least they had the sacrifices. At least they were able to worship and meet and come together, right? For all intents and purposes, this appeared to be a high point in Jewish history. And so what Jesus does next would have been shocking, to say the least. Jesus, when he comes in in this righteous anger, he starts turning over tables. He starts driving out both those who sold and those who bought. He, everyone's having a good time celebrating, and Jesus turns the party into a courtroom. And the following verses tell us why. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them, and he was saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Jesus here is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah 56, 7. You see, the primary function of the temple was meant to be a house of prayer. It was meant to be a place where people would come and meet with God. And here, the people, the leadership, have brought in all these vendors and they've set up all these booths, turning God's temple into a marketplace. John's account kind of puts the emphasis on this as well when he tells the story. He says, Jesus says to the vendors, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus isn't just, isn't condemning commercialism here. Jesus is rather condemning the fact that it's taking place in the temple at the expense of the worship of God. There's actually evidence, many scholars have pointed this out, that sacrificial animals were at one point sold on the nearby Mount of Olives. And that it wasn't until recently that those sacrifices, or that the, the booths were given permission to come and to set up shop in the temple. And so this was a pretty recent thing that they were able to do that. And so... Uh, Jesus, for one thing, seems to be very concerned with that, the fact that they turn this into a common marketplace. Verse 16 drives this point home. Look there. He says, And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. You see, because of the size of the temple, it was inconvenient to walk all the way around the temple grounds. And so as a way, uh, as a shortcut, people would come through performing their day-to-day -day activities, carrying who knows what, interrupting worship and everything else as they would march through. And Jesus uh, has a problem with this. It's also interesting to note this. Mark, of all of the accounts in the Gospels, is the only one who, who, again, he had a Gentile audience in mind when he wrote this that we know of, and he's the only account that includes the additional description from Isaiah 56 that, that says it's a house of prayer for all the nations. Again, you've got to understand the way that the Temple Mount was set up was that it was set up as all these courts. And there are these courts inside courts. So I want you to think boxes inside of boxes. And the further inside you went, the smaller the boxes got and the more exclusive they became. So the most inner box was the Holy of Holies. It was the place where only the high priest could go to offer sacrifices once a year on the Day of Atonement. And then from there, it went out and the most farthest and biggest out place was called the Court of of the Gentiles. That's where this scene is taking place, in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus is, is calling into account that not only have they gone and turned his temple into a place of worship, 
and but or to a place a marketplace but they've also to make matters worse they've also did so at the expense of gentile believers this was the only place they could come to worship and pray was in this place and it was a temp, it was a thing the second clue we're given for why jesus responds the way he does is in the second phrase but you have made this a den of robbers he's again quoting old testament he's quoting jeremiah 7 11. i think that this quote here gets at the heart it's the heart of what Jesus is, is condemning and combating against, okay? And, and this verse comes alive when it's read in context. So just listen aloud. I'm going to read Jeremiah 7, uh, the first few verses. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. So Jeremiah the prophet is speaking on behalf of God and he's supposed to say these words. Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Who's he talking to? Je Jeremiah is standing at the temple in front of the house of worship and he's talking to people going to church. He's talking to people who are going to worship. He's talking to people who claim to be the people of God. And then he says this, verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Repent, and you can stay. Do not trust in deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Has this house, and he quotes, this is the quote, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Here's the point, okay? Here's the whole point of the message. This is why you came, right? Jesus isn't doing anything new. He has been confronting this very thing from the very beginning of his ministry. Israel's religious show of glitz and fanfare was nothing but an empty embarrassment. It was all show and no heart. They gave an outward appearance of great spirituality and devotion to God, but inside they had proved to be hypocrites. To sum it up in a verse, Mark 7 says this. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That is at the heart what Jesus is attacking and confronting here. Jesus responds in the way that he does in the temple and the fig tree because he sees the hypocrisy of heart. His actions weren't a vindictive fury, but rather an acted out parable of God's righteous and holy judgment on hypocrisy. And in the bullseye were the outwardly religious but inwardly dead. It was the church of Sardis. It was uh, in John's letter in Revelation, John writes this, writing to the church. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. We don't want to just have a reputation <laughs> for being alive. We want to actually be alive. Friends, this is a warning to you and me. And the warning is this. It is possible to be churched, to be polite and pleasant and well-liked, 
It is possible to be a generally moral person and to know some things about Jesus and God and not be spiritually alive. This passage is meant to be a heart check for you and I. And in fact, this is actually a good thing for us. It's a good thing for us from time to time to question our heart and to ask of ourselves, does this describe me? Right? I'm not saying that we should question our salvation all the time. I'm saying that we should from time to time healthfully consider our hearts. It's so easy to show up, check the boxes, and just go through the motions. I'm guilty of that from time to time as well. It, don't get me wrong, right? This, this is a part of the Christian life. Showing up to church, attending Bible study, all that's a part of the Christian life. But that does not make you a Christian. First and foremost, being a Christian means supernaturally being changed in your heart. It means seeing your sin for what it is and therefore seeing your need for being saved. Jesus in a few days is going to show you just how bad it is. He's going to march to the cross and he is going to die a sinner's death and bear the full wrath of God because it had gotten so bad. And then it means seeing Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the solution. It means seeing Jesus' perfect life as the life you failed to live. It means seeing his death as the death you deserve. It means seeing his resurrection as the gift you are given. This is what Jesus meant. I'm landing the plane. When he said to Peter, when he noticed the fig tree had withered and died, he says in verse 22, he says, have faith in God. Don't look at the fig tree, Peter. Look at the cross. Trust in God. Have you put your trust in Christ? Have you fully submitted yourself to the king who came on Palm Sunday? We don't just want to have a reputation of being alive. We want to actually be alive. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your gracious warnings and mercy in your warnings. Lord, help us to see and trust that we have actually been made alive. That you have actually changed our hearts. That we love you and see you as the solution and answer to our greatest problem. Lord, may we trust in you as we anticipate the work that you're going to do and that you're going to accomplish in your, in your life, your death, and your resurrection to come. And Lord, we, we wait for that great day when we are all made anew. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.